Before I let him come up here, uh, I get to introduce to you my father. For the first 14 years of my life, I got to sit under his preaching. And in the past 15, I've done nothing but miss it. Um, so this is a great privilege to me. It's an honor. Uh, it's great to have him. I could give you a list of, you know, degrees he has or books he's written or yada, yada, yada. But he would never want me to say that. Uh, instead, uh, what I could say is just as somebody who has admired him for years, um, he's been a great dad, but he's a faithful minister of God's word. So it is a true privilege that we have uh, to have him speak to us. So thank you. Good morning. God bless you. Let's, I just want to invite you to, let's just pray together for the word of God now. Father, I want to give thanks to you for your word. Lord, it's a special privilege for us to be able to come into your presence and read these words that you've inspired by your Holy Spirit. We confess to you, Lord, that we depend on the Holy Spirit of God to open our minds and our hearts and make us sensitive to whatever it is you want to communicate to us through these words this morning. Help us, Lord, to put to one side anything that would distract our minds or our hearts, any worries or difficulties that we might be living through now. Lord, we came here to to meet you, to come into your presence, to experience you, to learn about you, to know a little bit more about you than we knew before we came here. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to just focus all of our attention on you now and on what you want to do through your word in our hearts and in our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're going to be talking about a couple of miracles that happened almost 2,000 years ago in a different part of the world. I'm just going to read through the text and then talk a little bit about it, and we'll go through it a little more slowly. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 31 to 43. Now, I know that the message last week ended up with verse 31, but the author of the book of Acts, Luke, has the habit of transitioning from one thing to another, and so oftentimes the last verse or two of one passage is really also the first verse or two of the next passage. So we're going to start with 31 and read through 43. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible or the Bible that you find there in your pews. The Word of God says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda, and there he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was, Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men, to him, two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them 
And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her hand, and he helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And that verse will be the beginning of next week's message. Well, if, if you continue with Cornelius. So today we're hearing about two miracles, as I said, that happened a long time ago in a different place, in a different culture, and even what we're reading is a translation of the narration that explains what happened there. So we need a little bit of help in this. We're a little bit like, if, if you'll think about this with me for a minute, we're a little bit like a, an indigenous man that was snatched somehow out of the jungles of South America and brought up and set on a bridge that goes over I-85 on a dark night with no moon and no stars. And as he looked down from that bridge, he'd see sparks of white and red light flashing back and forth underneath his feet. And as a man who had probably never seen or even heard of automobiles, and much less uh, superhighways in the United States, as he looked down on that and heard the sounds of vehicles rushing by underneath his feet, he'd have a really hard time trying to figure out what was going on. It would probably be a sort of a frightening experience for him. And now imagine yourself if somehow the Holy Spirit were to snatch you and take you down to the jungles of South America and place you there once again on a dark, starless, moonless night. And then around you, you'd be hearing unfamiliar sounds. You'd probably see some lights flashing back and forth. You'd experience the heat and the humidity and you'd have a really hard time interpreting what you were seeing and hearing because you had no experience whatsoever of that world. That's a little bit what we are like when we come close to a biblical text like this and try to understand what's going on. So we have to talk a little bit about what was going on in that, in that time when these two miracles happened. And we get a hint of that when we read at the very beginning... In verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened and built up. The time right before that had been a time of persecution. You remember from the preaching through the book of Acts that in chapter 8, a persecution broke out. In chapter 7, Peter was stoned to death right at the end of chapter 7. And it says in chapter 8, a persecution broke out. And everybody from Jerusalem had to flee. And as they went, they went preaching the gospel. Now, imagine what it would be like living in a place where because you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you had to be prepared to leave behind everything you own and flee on foot, carrying just whatever you could on your back. We've all seen in news programs Things like that are happening to people in other parts of this world. People are fleeing from Syria 
and taking their lives into their hands to get across the Mediterranean Sea into Greece and other parts of and Italy and other parts of Europe. And they're walking and carrying just what they can on their backs. And you can see them, they have a little child on each hand. They don't know what they're going to eat. They don't know when is the next time they'll have a comfortable place to sleep. When they do get somewhere where care is given to them, they're living in refugee camps underneath tents with latrines instead of bathrooms. And all of that because of what they believe in. Now, here we're, we're in a nice comfortable church in Clover and all of these things seem very distant to us. But that's what people were experiencing right before this time of peace that God granted. Because the people, people who are in Jerusalem had to flee for their lives because a man named Saul and other people were seeking them to put them in jail or to do bodily harm to them just because they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read this here, they enjoyed a time of peace you can imagine what a relief that must have been for many of them. Now, in chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 8, in the first few verses, it says that the people, when they fled from Jerusalem, they went away sharing about their faith in Jesus Christ. They went away. Some of them surely fled to Lydda. Maybe some of them had been from Lydda. Lydda was a, is a little town. You can look on your map on the bulletin there, and you can locate Lydda. It's just a little ways from Jerusalem. You have to go through the Judean hill country on foot. It's probably about a day and a half's journey from Jerusalem. Maybe some of the people who had been members of the church in Jerusalem recently converted to the Lord Jesus Christ were originally from Lydda, and so they would have fled to their hometown. And when they got there, they would have encountered people that they knew, people that they grew up with, and they would have shared with them what had happened in Jerusalem about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and how the Holy Spirit fell on the church and how the apostles were doing miracles and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ and how their lives had been transformed because they began to believe in him. And there in Lydda and also in Joppa and Caesarea and, and other towns in the area, churches sprang up and began to gather together and worship the Lord together. So some time after this, we have no idea exactly how long after this persecution brought out, broke out, the Lord gave a time of peace. And it says these churches began to grow at that point in time. As we read the next few phrases here in this verse 31, I, I'd appreciate it if you take the little flyer out of your bullet and we're going to read along. This is a translation that I made of the Greek. It's not because the NIV is a bad translation. It's just because this is, this is maybe a little more literal and brings out a couple of the phrases that I think are important because it's important for us to understand what the mindset of the church was when these miracles happened. On that little flyer right beside the map, it says, So the church in all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. So there's four things there. First of all, the idea that God gave peace. Now, peace in the Bible, I don't think it's what we normally think of when we think of peace. When we think of peace, we think of just the absence of conflict. A war is over, and so we're in a time of peace. Uh, in Colombia where I minister a lot, 
the government and one of the guerrilla groups has been negotiating for about four years trying to come to some kind of agreement so that there can be peace between the government and that particular guerrilla group. And for them it just means we're going to stop shooting each other. But in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament both, when we read about peace, it's much more than just an absence of conflict. What peace means is a general state of well-being, something that affects your body but also affects your heart, your emotions, and your spirit. It's a time of communion with God, a time of drawing close to God. What God wanted when he created the world was this kind of peace, where he and his people could enjoy his creation together. He wanted to be able to walk with you and I as we go hunting deer or, or walking in a park or going to work or cooking dinner. He wanted to relate with us, to fellowship with us. And that's what peace really means in the Bible. It's a time of close communion with God when everything seems to be as it should be. So God gave a time of peace to his church right after this time of persecution. Then it says three things. It talks about three things that were happening in the church that caused the church to be multiplied or to grow in numbers. And the three things are being built up. That's the first thing. Walking in the fear of the Lord. That's the second thing. And walking in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. That's the third thing. These were three things that were going on in the church at that time. And because of these three things, the church was multiplied. And also because of the peace that God had given to the church. Now, I just want to go through these three things one at a time because each one of them is very important. The first one is being built up. Being built up, the word there in the Greek, what it means is the process of increasing the potential or ability of the church to become powerful in the transforming of lives and culture. Okay, I'm just going to read that to you one more time. Being built up is the process of increasing the potential or the ability of the church to become a powerful, transforming influence in people's lives and in the culture. Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 13. He says it like this, Until we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So this being built up, it's a process of growing to maturity. Now, when a child physically grows to maturity, he becomes more able. He has more potential. There's more things that he can do. And here it talks about the whole church growing to maturity. We're not talking about individuals all becoming each one of them like Christ. We're talking about the body as a whole, working together, worshiping together, praising together, serving together. We as a whole become more and more like Christ. We grow to maturity. And as we become more like Christ, we have more potential to influence and transform the world around us, the people in our families that don't know Jesus Christ yet, our co-workers, the people we study with, the people that we meet out on the street and maybe get mad at in a traffic jam on the way to work. So being built up was one of the three things that was happening to the church at this time that allowed the church to be multiplied as the people who already believed in Jesus Christ came together in worship and service, in praise, and in love, God was able to use them to reach out to the people around them. And because of that, the church was growing. The second thing there, it says, walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord, I think sometimes 
we kind of dilute it down and make it less than what it is. Because I've often heard people say it's nothing more than just reverence or respect, like what a son has for his stern father. He knows when dad comes home, if he's done something wrong, he's going to get a whipping. So he's, you know, he respects his dad. It's not like he's afraid of him, but he's kind of afraid that when he comes home, he's going to get a whipping or something like that. Fear of the Lord goes way beyond that. I have written down here, fear of the Lord is knowing deeply and fully the nature of the God whom we serve and what he requires of us. It's not just respect or reverence. It certainly includes respect and reverence. But the fear of the Lord, it's a concept that comes all the way through the Old Testament and all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. It's a concept of knowing who God really is and who we really are and so relating to him. Some of the people that were in Lydda and Joppa at the time these two miracles occurred had surely heard the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying things like this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When Jesus said this to his followers, he was trying to inspire this kind of fear of the Lord. It's an idea of who God really is and what our relationship to him entails. You see, a lot of people started following Jesus Christ because they saw his miracles. And that's kind of like the downside of miracles because he multiplied the bread and fishes and then thousands of people were following Jesus around the lake and trying to get close to him again because they wanted him to do that again. They thought, maybe, well, maybe I can quit work if Jesus is going to just be feeding us all the time. And I would imagine the bread and the fishes that he multiplied were probably a lot better than the bread and the fishes that they could buy at the market because it was, it was something that Jesus Christ himself had done. But Jesus, instead of encouraging that kind of thing, he actually discouraged those people. And he taught with words like these, making, trying to help people to understand, look, this, just, this isn't just me satisfying your physical needs. This is something that goes way beyond that. A little later, Jesus said in the book of Luke, the last verse verses I read was Luke 9, 23 and 26. Now in Luke 2, 12, 4 through 5, these are some other words that Jesus spoke. And I'm sure some of the people in Lydda and some of the people in Joppa had either heard these words from Jesus himself or the apostles reporting it. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So when we come to know who God really is and who we really are and what it entails to be in a relationship with the God who made us, then we begin to understand what fear of the Lord is all about. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. In the book of Proverbs, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says the fear of the Lord is the foundation of all knowledge. Indeed, the scientific revolution occurred because some Christian men began to think about 
how the world was made and study and discover it. Earlier we read in Psalm 118, and I'm going to read to you again verses 4 through 10. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. Now that verse is extremely important because sometimes we grow to be afraid of someone who abuses us. Some, some of you here may have had been in algum, some moment, I'm sorry, I'm starting to speak in Spanish. At some moment of, of your lives, you might have been in an abusive relationship. Some of you may have been physically or emotionally or psychologically or even sexually abused by a close family member, a father, an uncle. Maybe some of you have been in a relationship where your mother was extremely strict and severe with you or some teacher or someone else in your life. Maybe you were bullied when you were a kid and you became afraid of a bad person, a person who was doing wrong things to you. But the fear of the Lord isn't like this because verse 4 here, Psalm 118.4 said, Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. Now God is all-powerful. He's holy. He's a burning fire. But He's also love. So we come to reverence, to respect, and to understand what it means to be in a relationship with one who is so powerful that there's nothing impossible for him but at the same time, whose love endures forever. And the word for love there in Psalm 118.4, it's, it's a Hebrew word, chesed. And this word means a lot more than love. It's, it's a word that's so full of meaning. And it entails also God's faithfulness to us, his trueness, his unchangeableness, the fact that we can totally and fully depend upon him no matter what is going on in our lives. So the church at that time was walking in the fear of, of the Lord. And it's this kind of fear that I'm trying to describe to you. So two things so far, they were being built up, they were walking in the fear of the Lord, and then the third thing is they were walking in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Now here again, the word encouragement is kind of like that word chesed that I told you. The word of encouragement in, in the New Testament in the Greek, it's paraklesis. Paraklesis is a word, it comes from the Greek verb parakleo. And parakleo, what it, that means is it means being called alongside of someone. Okay? So paraklesis is a word that means whatever your need is, okay, whatever your need is, this person, the Holy Spirit, has been called alongside of you to minister to you in that area of need that you have. Now for some people, maybe some people are discouraged and they need to be built up. So paraklesis means being built up or encouraged. Some people might be depressed, so they need to be cheered up. Some people might be sad, so they need to be comforted. Some people might be astray, walking in sin, so they need to be exhorted and corrected and brought back. Paraclesis includes all of these possible meanings because all it really means is one who has been called alongside of you. We're going to read a little bit later, or actually we read, about how when Dorcas died, the church in Joppa heard that Peter was up in Lydda, so they sent some people up there and said, come down. And the word they use is parakaleo. And what they're saying to Peter is, come alongside of us. Okay, we're going through a crisis. This lady we loved has died. We want you to come alongside of us. We don't know what you're going to do. We don't know what God's going to do. I don't think they really expected Peter to raise Dorcas. I mean, that's a pretty unusual thing to have happen. But they wanted Peter to be there present with them, be alongside them, be with them. And that's what the Holy Spirit is to us. 
Okay? We go through all kinds of different situations in life. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad. There's people here who are probably waiting on God in agony for a miracle. They're probably going through some hard times. There's probably some sick people here, some people that are going through a difficulty in relationship. People here who maybe their sons and daughters are, have gone astray and they're worried about them. People here who have economic difficulties and they have no idea what's going to happen. People here are studying. They've got some heavy exams coming up and they don't know if they're going to be able to, to get past and pass this year. So paraklesis just means that the Holy Spirit is there whatever our situation is. That dependable God, that loving God, that God we fear, that God who has all power, that God for whom nothing is impossible, is a, alongside of us. And walking in the paraklesis of the Holy Spirit just means being aware of that fact. Whatever happens to be going on in your life right now, you're aware of the fact that that all-powerful God is living in you and has come alongside of you to minister to you and to walk with you through whatever you're walking through in this moment. So those three things were happening in the churches in Lydda and in Joppa and all throughout Judea and Samaria, these little churches that had been born in the fire of persecution, people who had come to confess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ after hearing that people were going to be looking for them to put them in jail and kill them. Okay, these are not Sunday Christians. These are people who really believe that walking with Jesus is more important than their own lives. It's more important than all of their possessions. It's more important than anything in this world. Okay, these are real Christians. And they're being edified, they're being built up. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. And they're walking in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. So, let's see these two miracles. Aeneas, Peter said, let's see, we're in verse 32. Peter traveled about the country. He went to visit the saints in Lydda, and there he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Okay, we're used to looking at miracles from the point of view of when they happened. Okay, here's a paralyzed guy. Peter walks up to him and says, Jesus heals you. He gets up, he rolls up his mat, and he goes away. But we don't focus on the details about the man. I want you to look at this miracle from his point of view. How long had he been sick and paralyzed? What's it say there? You can answer. Eight years. It's a long time to be sick. It's a long time to be paralyzed. Nowadays, if someone's paralyzed, they've got these little motorized cars they can ride around in, or wheelchairs. In those days, four people had to come and pick this guy up on a mat if he had to go somewhere. Think about going to the bathroom in a situation like that. Think about eating. Think about going from one place to another when you're in that kind of situation. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if Aeneas was a believer when he got sick. But let's imagine for a while that he was, because... I know lots of people that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that are sick like this. They're in agony. They're waiting for a miracle. They're praying to God. And it's even worse, I think, for the family members of someone who's gotten sick. 
Because the person who's sick, that's right, he's suffering. But the family members identify with a person and cry out to God and they're giving of their lives and pouring into this person, trying to help him, and the situation keeps getting worse and worse as time goes on. Now, Aeneas was in that kind of situation for eight years. Imagine what it must be like to walk in the fear of the Lord and walk in the encouragement, the paraclesis of the Holy Spirit while you're sick for eight years. And then one day, Peter walks into his house and sees him there and says, the Lord heals you, Aeneas. Get up and roll up your mat. And he was able to do that. So as we go through these kinds of situations, we need to learn no matter what we're going through at this particular moment in our lives, whether it's problems with relationships or problems with the economy or because so-and-so got elected or problems health problems, that the Holy Spirit is there with us. We need to understand that we're walking in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and we need to continue to walk in the fear of the Lord, which includes hope and faith in His faithfulness and in His trueness as we walk through these situations. The second miracle is similar. Lydda was near Joppa. Oh, I started too late here. Let's go to verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha which translated as Dorcas, that means, in English that means gazelle, uh, who was always doing good and helping the poor. This was one of these Christians that loves to serve other people. It's always giving of herself for other people. Now, if I, if I were to ask how many Dorcases are there here in the congregation, probably nobody would stand up. But if I, if I sent you all a little piece of paper and said, write down the name of two or three people in this church that are always serving others, that are always giving of themselves, that are always loving other people and giving of what they have to help other people out, I'm sure that everyone in here could write down three or four names because every congregation I've ever known has some of these Dorcases in that congregation. I know there's some of them here. The Word of God says that she became sick and died. Now, what would the church have been doing when Dorcas became sick? It doesn't say here how long she'd been sick, but what do we do for our brothers and sisters when they're ill? What do we do for them? We pray for them, right? We visit them. We take them stuff. We think about, you know, if there's some way we can help them get better. We pour our lives out into them and try to help them. So the church was coming around Dorcas during this time and they were calling out to the Lord and praying for her and serving her, hoping that she would get better. But did she? No, she died. There's a similar situation in the Gospel of John. Do you remember? Lazarus got sick and his two sisters sent to Jesus saying, your, your best friend is ill. And Jesus waited a couple days and when he got there, Lazarus had been dead. How many days? I think three days. And both Martha and Mary came to Jesus one after the other, and said, Jesus, if you'd been here, our brother would still be alive. Okay? So sometimes God's answers to our prayer don't come when we expect them to come or when we wish they would come. So Dorcas got sick and she died. About that time, let's say she sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. It says, Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come down at once. They said to Peter, please come alongside us in this crisis that we have. 
Peter went with them. He got up, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with her. Peter said, sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. She, he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. So here's a miraculous intervention of God. A lady's raised from the dead. And why? Why do you think God did this? Why do you think he healed Aeneas in that moment? I mean, Aeneas was sick for eight years, and it finally got healed while the church was in this state. And then Dorcas got sick. The church surely prayed for her, but she died. And then Peter showed up and brought her back to life right at that moment, at that perfect moment. In both of these, it says, in verse 42, it says, This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. And in the miracle of Aeneas, in verse 34, it says, verse 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Okay? So the churches were growing. They were in this state where they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And it was in that very moment that God sent Peter there to work these two miracles to bring more people in. Where I'm going with this In the situations in which a person is, a bad situation maybe, a situation where you're crying out to God and asking for some kind of help from him, some kind of miracle from him, and the situation goes on and on, and nothing seems to happen. Nothing seems to get any better. In fact, things sometimes seem to get worse. But the time of testimony will come. You remember at the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. And they said, in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, a witness, what does a witness do? He gives testimony. He talks about what's happened in his own life. Okay? In both of these cases, God performed a miracle, and that miracle allowed testimony to be given. And that testimony brought more people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage you. Maybe there's a lot of people here, maybe that aren't going through any problems, and you're saying, well, what's this got to do with me? Well, I can guarantee you, you will go through some problems because life is like that. Sometimes things go along pretty smoothly, sometimes for a long time, and then everything breaks loose, and you're kind of wondering, what is going on with this? If we're walking in the fear of the Lord, and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, if we're allowing ourselves to be built up in the Lord, then whatever happens in your life, you can look upon it as an opportunity to give testimony someday. See, the things that we're going through, the Holy Spirit's there to accompany us through them. We don't know when or how God's going to intervene, but we can rely upon Him because He's faithful. Okay? He says that He will never leave us and He will never forsake us. The Word of God says that for those who love the Lord, all things work together for good. There's lots of examples of it in Scripture, and I'm sure many of you could give testimony of these things in your lives. These miracles are here to encourage us and to help us to know that no matter what is happening in our lives at this moment or no matter what might come to our lives, 
We need to be prepared for it in this way, by walking in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and to wait patiently and hopefully so that the day of testimony will be able to come. I'd like to pray for you, and then we're going to sing together the hymn 521, which is a hymn that helps us to understand what it means to stand in Christ and trust in Him. Let's just stand together as we look for the hymn and as we pray. Father, I want to give you thanks for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for Peter, for Aeneas, and for Tabitha. And thank you, Lord, for your church at that time. Lord, help us to be encouraged. Help us to walk in, your, in the fear of, of the Lord. Help us to walk in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And help us to allow ourselves to be built up by the Word of God, by gathering together in prayer and worship, by the experiences that we have in our lives, and by each other. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.